0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This is J.D. Fascinetti. Our next podcast in the series of New Drug Development focuses on the regulatory environment and the laws, guidelines, and best practices that the FDA in the U.S. and the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, requires to approve a new drug or therapy. Today we chat with Michael Monahan, Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs at Chronetics Pharmaceuticals, and with Debbie Comendez, who is the Manager of Regulatory Operations and Regulatory Affairs, also at Chronetics. They provide an extensive, in-depth look at the regulatory environment. This is, a, without a doubt, one of the most captivating discussions with Michael and Debbie, and they give us a thorough insider's look at their work and at a critical component in the development of a new drug. Thank you to Michael and Debbie for taking the time to talk to us and sharing their knowledge and experience.
1: Well, thank you, JD, first, uh, for having these sessions and inviting us. a pleasure to be here. The Regulatory Affairs Department, primarily, we are the interface between the company, the sponsors that conduct clinical trials, and the regulated health authorities. And those are either the FDA, in the case of the U.S., or EMA, European Medicines Agency in Europe, or uh, even local regulatory authorities, and we would consider ethics committees to be uh, regulatory bodies that have uh, some uh, piece to the process for an approval and conduct and oversight of a clinical trial. So we're that primary interface between those bodies. The second thing is that we are experts in the laws, regulations, guidelines, and best practices for conducting clinical trials, and we advise the organization on um, current industry standards, and we also make sure that where's that red line uh, when, you know, something is coming up to there and saying, look, we can't do this or that, Um, that's uh, a law that we have to stop, Um, we're that... uh, organization that, that can
0: hold up the red flag at that point. So you work equally with the FDA and with the EMA. Are, you, are, the, are the drugs developed at the same time in Europe and in the U.S.? Let's just say this new CRN00808. Mm-hmm. It, it has a track in the U.S. and a track in Europe.
1: Yes. In this day and age, you cannot feasibly conduct clinical studies in just the U.S. Uh, And nor do we want to. No, sure. Um, We want to have as broad an access uh, to therapies that we develop, to uh, as many people as can benefit. And um, from a clinical trial perspective, recruiting in just the US is extraordinarily difficult. Mm -hmm. So we have to go out globally, find investigators, find sites, and find patients to participate in these trials. And the European environment is um, is a great place to do that one because they are um, very aligned in many aspects with the u.s regulations in the fda and two, the the patient population in terms of uh, the indications and medical practice are aligned very well with uh, the u.s here so all of our studies that that we conduct as an industry are going to be global studies and in the end that helps us with our um, end goals of, one, regulatory approval globally, um, because it's much easier when a European authority is looking at an application and they see that, hey, look, 50% of the studies were, were uh, conducted here in, in our territories. Yeah. Um, but two, once you get approval, that patient access um, globally to as broad sure. as, uh, as we can get.
0: So the perception out there, and it may be totally untrue, is that the European... Organizations are a little more lenient or um, uh, different. Uh, are you? Do you how, is, how does that work? Is it? Is it? For example, is it? Is it easier for a study to happen in Europe than it is in the U.S.
2: I think it depends on what criteria you're thinking about. Um,
0: well, it's just maybe just a perception.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think logistically, from a regulatory spe- uh, perspective, it can be more complicated um, to conduct your clinical trial because you have to go to every single country individually. There's a separate clinical trial application mm-hmm. um, bef- that you need to get approved before you can start yeah. um, start your study. Well,
0: I'm asking because a perception, maybe, in the patient community is that, they're, the Europeans are f- faster at, uh, you getting drugs to the market. There are more mm-hmm. drugs, and maybe for some, maybe this is not correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm just asking you to, if, if if you see it in the work that you do.
1: I I would say that that perception is is not correct. Okay. Um, I, the, the US regulatory Like many
0: perceptions, right? It, yes, <laughs> it, it is.
1: Um, and, and of course there's exemptions to, uh, and exceptions to any kind of uh, issue that we're talking about. But for the most part, uh, the US regulatory environment um, is at this point very pro-therapy. Uh, and this is a pendulum that swings back and forth over the years. Uh, but right now we have um, a, a great working relationships with the FDA. And as you can see from last year, with the number of therapies approved, um, there's a there's a, a favorable environment for getting treatments approved. Sure, and, and but in rare
0: says. diseases. In yeah. rare disease,
1: a- yeah. absolutely. Yeah. In, in Europe, um, I would say that the European authorities have the same rigorous standards. Um, they may have different uh, focus. Oftentimes, they are looking at... Uh, what the therapy is compared to the current standard of care. Whereas the FDA may often look at your drug um, uh, solely on its own merit. So there's sometimes a different perspective, but from a regulatory uh, point of view, the the same rigorous standards Mm -hmm. apply. Overall though, if we're looking, say, just at um, say market application review times, the FDA uh, beats Europe in almost every instance. Mm
0: -hmm. So why don't we talk a little bit about the compounds that you have on, on the pipeline now, sure. and what are the what, what do you deal with in terms of the, the regulatory environment as you go from discovery to, to development and then the different phases?
2: Yeah, so I think um, the way that I like to think about regulatory affairs is um, we're the primary interface, but really it's about telling the story of that drug. So when something is moving into phase one, You have your non-clinical kind of safety data. You have, um, you know, some initial ideas about how you're going to manufacture it. And then you have your, um, you know, your proposed uh, first study in humans, right? So we're thinking about how to package all that data to meet the regulations that are needed and to present that to the FDA.
0: And do you always work with the same team at the FDA? So when when you go to the FDA and say, okay, we have something that's looking... Like we're going to move on this i'm assuming that's a conversation you mm-hmm. have do you, do you that's fda assign somebody and you guys work with them throughout the yeah, process yeah we have an assigned so there's continuity project manager yeah.
2: and then are do the reviewers stay the same michael oftentimes they'll yeah. stay the
1: same mm-hmm. but uh, occasionally especially if you're looking at different indications for the same compound mm-hmm. that's a situation where you may be in a completely different division or office Uh, at the FDA, and in that case, where say uh, example here with our compound for 808, the acromegaly indication is with the division of metabolism and endocrinology products. Mm -hmm. But if we were to evaluate that uh, for carcinoid syndrome, that would be in the division of gastroenterology. So in that case, it would be a very different Different team from a medical review. The folks who are looking at product quality, what we call chemistry manufacturing controls, the manufacturer of the drug, those people would be the same, mm-hmm. as well as many of the folks who would be looking at um, the animal study and non-clinical data. Those would probably be the same. As
0: so they 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 are as knowledgeable when, when you work on a drug as, as you are in terms of how the development goes.
1: I would say absolutely. These are, um, FDA is a core group of uh highly educated trained and, and trained scientists yeah. Yeah. and doctors yeah the one thing that they lack and sometimes we we forget mm-hmm. is the intimate knowledge of our compound sure, and, sure. and occasionally we'll be talking at a level because we're so familiar with something and and we'll be talking right by them simply because uh you know they're not uh, day in and day out dealing uh, so yeah. a lot of times
0: we have to keep that in mind. So, yeah. so, uh, so you work on the re- regulatory end, obviously, but I'm curious uh, to know about your, uh, you know, your background. Do you have a scientific background also, and and how did how did you decide that this is what you wanted to do?
2: So I think the traditional route is often for people to have a scientific background. Um, regulatory affairs as a profession, I think, started as people who were, you know, on the chemistry side, you know, on yeah. the science, the research side, and they sort of moved into that. Um, I'm a little bit uh, of a departure from that. Yeah. So my background is actually um, originally in public health. Um, okay. And so I started working for a um, an organization that was trying to get a drug registered in other countries for obstetric indications that mm-hmm. was to prevent... Um, Uh, postpartum hemorrhage, excessive bleeding after childbirth. And that's when I started um, understanding the importance of regulatory affairs and that you need to get drugs registered for their specific indication, especially in other countries where um, off-label use isn't really accepted. And so to um, to make this drug accessible around the world... Um, for that use, we really needed to get it registered. So that's when I started moving into regulatory affairs. And by
0: off-label, you mean mm-hmm. uh, for outside of the
2: uh, proposed, the, okay. the approved indication. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Um, oh, and Michael. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so my yeah. Uh, education uh, is in biochemistry, so so strong uh, uh, scientific background there, but. I think a lot of regulatory professionals are really uh, jack-of-all-trades uh, folks and people who can interact with a wide variety of uh, disciplines and personality types yeah. because and in the end, we have to pull all of these things together and uh, do, as Debbie put it, a single coherent story um, for the agencies. Um, although one thing I, I, I'd like to add is, is that regulatory affairs um, often... Is uh, is is a, uh, a red-headed stepchild a bit? I, I like to say that there's three archetypes in regulatory affairs, and and Debbie laughs at me as, as I say this. Um, the the first is is the paper pusher, right? So all we do is we take uh, somebody else's document, we put our header and footer on it, stamp it as ours, and we submit it and and take credit for their work. Um, the the next archetype is uh, someone who has uh, essentially, they wanted to be in quality assurance. And so they wanted to just say, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. Um, and uh, and it, essentially they're in the wrong position. Yeah. And then the third <laughs> is uh, somebody who started their career in a different scientific specialty um, say in uh, chemistry, and manufacturing, controls, or a non-clinical scientist in the lab, and they got bored of that, and they looked around to see what else they could do, and then they go to regulatory to uh, live out their career and die. Um, so no you... lawyers
0: though. That's <laughs> encouraging.
1: Um, <laughs> that's an interesting thing. I, you know, regulatory is a is akin yeah. to legal in that sure. sense. We, we do have to know and understand and be able to interpret laws and regulations. Um, but we never wanted to put ourselves through, uh, you know, the brutal, uh, first semester of law school. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so, um, what, how's your day like? You know, so you, what, what sort of challenges do you, you see, on a daily basis, you see the, the work that you have to get done so the, the process moves smoother? Maybe talk a little bit about, uh, the barriers to success where, where maybe a drug is being developed at, at 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 a really good clip or pace and there's a regulatory issue that comes that puts a stop to it or slows it down for you know for for the patient community to understand what do those things look like
2: i think it depends on where we are in the development process so for example with 808 we're at the clinical um clinical trial level and um I think one of the challenges that I'm working on is getting ready um, to get a clinical um, trial started and putting together all those applications for the different regulatory authorities. So part of what you're trying to do is uh, anticipate some of the questions um, those regulatory authorities might have and make sure that they're supporting data or documents or evidence to help anticipate those so that mm-hmm. if you don't get that question, that's time that you're saving um, so you can get the trial started faster.
1: Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I like to say is that um, every day I come into work, I actually don't know what I'll be doing that day. <laughs> it often uh, comes to pass that, uh, as we said, we're in a global environment here, that, that during the night uh, we received a query from a health authority in Europe. And so what I had planned to do that day, yeah. uh, probably something strategic and uh, forward thinking, Now, I come in and I see uh, an email from a health authority in Germany, and uh, they have issued a request for information, and I've got five days to respond. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, all my plans went out the window, I'm now focused on this. So, in regulatory affairs, we are often uh, at the mercy whim of some of the health authorities with their requests, and very often, we're under um, uh, incredible timeline pressures. When, when there's a drug approval uh, under review uh, in Canada, they have a two-day turnaround for some of the requests, yeah. and, and these requests can be quite extensive. Uh, other areas, especially in Europe, they have a thing called a clock stop. And so they have a set period of time to review an application, 30 or 60 days. But when they issue a query to us, their clock stops.
0: Yeah, they want an answer now.
1: Right, right? and they don't start their <laughs> clock until we respond. So now we're at a day-for-day day delay. And, and so there's always a, a time pressure and time crunch. So, so that's, that's one thing, is we often don't know what we may be working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you talk about uh, long-term barriers to drug development, there are so many moving parts that we need to pull together that communication is, is the biggest thing. Communication internally uh, with our clinical department, our manufacturing department, uh, and, cl- and communication externally with our clinical sites and PIs, with the health authorities, our IRBs, and, and patients as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so does reg- regulatory efforts at your department, do you, do you, uh, you set an expectation to the, the team that's working on it, is that part of what you do? Uh, maybe an expectation of some of the issues to come and the expectation of where you're going to be, let's say, in you know six months a year, uh, is that is that something that you think about or?
2: I think it's always a balance between um, reacting to like these time sensitive things and, and spending the time to think about some of these potential issues and how we can kind of risk mitigate um, that. Um, yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah, a- absolutely. There's there's those near term expectations where we, uh, as regulatory folks, try to put out there what we think are going to be the issues or hurdles, um, and then the long-term ones. And we talk often about drug development. We're, We're thinking about getting this or that clinical trial up and running and the next patient enrolled. But the reality is drug development has an enormous timeline. Um, and especially when you compare that to other industry sectors right the the tech sector has development life cycles of a product of of a year to 18 months Mm -hmm. we look at in terms of seven-year development timelines and the planning that has to go into effect um, You know three four five years prior to when you get a drug approved is is immense because When you are approved, and once you're then out there on the market, what was in your label and everything that drives your ability to communicate with the market is based off of what you studied in development. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't study, say, a patient-reported outcome in your Phase 2 trial, you then can't validate that instrument to use in your Phase 3 trial. And if you don't have a validated instrument in your Phase 3 trial, you're not going to get it in your label, and therefore you can't communicate it to the market. So that lead time, going back all the way for a two-, three-year Phase 3, and before that, another one- to two-year Phase 2, can be immense. So you need to be thinking incredibly far down the road. Um, and, And sometimes it's a risk, and it's a gamble. You may have put something in place that... Five years down the road, either the market or the science changes, mm-hmm. and you realize, well, what we have um, is something that we're going to have to work with, and that goes into the story, but it may be that uh, your gamble didn't pay off, and, and you studied the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. So you're like the checklist department. <laughs> you go through everything. No? so you,
2: uh, <laughs> I think we're laughing because um, on paper it can seem very straightforward, but what I look what I, what really I find interesting about regulatory affairs is yeah there are these sort of you know steps right you lines go, and boundaries yeah you do this
0: then you do this right but yeah. every
2: every program is very different um, and there's always different challenges and so there's always something new and the regulations don't really spell out oh in this scenario you do this or in that scenario yeah. you do this and you have to rely on um, your experience and um, your colleagues to help you kind of navigate that and and make decisions within
0: those um, sort of boundaries. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about the perception that the FDA may be a little too close to pharma companies. Mm-hmm. And I'm using the Boeing 737 MAX mm-hmm. as an example of maybe a regulatory environment getting too close to industry to get a product out that may, should not maybe gone out. What What's your view on that? What How do you, I, I don't, my perception is that it's not an issue in the, in the drug development, but it's probably out there and in people's minds right now. so yeah. wh- what do you think about that? The
1: first the first I'd, I'd like to say that the FDA is in a no-win situation <laughs> often, right they, they have a dual mandate of conflicting purpose. Mm-hmm. The, the first being um, public, safety and and not approving drugs that aren't safe on the other hand access to therapy for patients and these two things can often be at odds especially when oh my God, they yes. have sure. clinical trial data that can be murky muddy confusing confounding yeah. and um i don't envy them no. one bit in the situation no. they're in yeah. and they <laughs> often um the pendulum swings back and forth over the years, and, and there can be times when that public health safety mandate is the, in the forefront, uh, and often it's, it's a reactionary thing of what just recently happened, mm-hmm. um, and the biox issues yeah. uh, previously. There was a period there where um, the FDA became much more uh, conservative and safety-focused, you look back to some of the very earliest times with um, access to AIDS therapies, right? Yes. Where um, there was such an enormous outcry that the FDA had to swing. Yeah, you're not moving fast enough. Right, and so I think at this point, we may be in a period where access is um, becoming more prominent, but I, I would say that the relationship with industry is the perception of that is is um, probably not as well founded um, as as folks may think. Yeah. The interactions that we have with the divisions and um, the review medical officers are always about the data. Sure. And that's what drives the FDA's
0: decisions in the end. It's, yeah. It's um, yeah. If anything, that sometimes the issue is. Why is it taking so long? When a patient can be able to say, "Well, why can't I take that? You know, let's see if it helps." And that's you know? why they're in a yeah. no-win situation. Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did Did you want to add anything to it? Yeah,
2: uh, I Debbie? think I think that um, you know, it it depends also on the company that you're at. I think some people can have some companies might have. Um, Like an an, almost even antagonistic type relationship with FDA, where it's like we want to do these certain things. You know, how do we just kind of figure this out? You know, they it's not like a partnership, right? And I think that's the um, that's sort of the perception that I hope um, we have is that you know we want to work together um, with the FDA to develop a good drug. For patients who need yeah. it, right? But at the end of the day, it all goes back to safety and efficacy because you want to make sure that the drug is safe and 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 works well. And I think yeah. that's that's a shared goal of the FDA and and um and an industry.
0: Well, let me just say that from a patient standpoint, it's fascinating for me to be sitting here listening to you guys and or uh, you know. The, people that, that we talked to before about the work that you do because it's fascinating and there's always things that um, make you worry I always ask the question what keeps you up at night you know when you <laughs> when you think about the thing you have to do the next day what are, what are the things that worry you about you know the work that you do yeah. um, is, there, is there is there something that that uh... Uh, absolutely um
1: there's, there's been times in my career where the, the thought um, of, of this overwhelming burden on my shoulders um, was, was enough to, to just bring me down and, and realize that if, if I made mistakes, mm-hmm. um, that, that people could be irrevocably harmed um, on the one hand, but on the other, that um, if i made a mistake the other way there could be countless millions that don't get access sure. to, to a treatment yeah. and and oftentimes this um, this burden comes to critical points where uh, everything is is on the line and and it could be um, you know how you craft that story how you are looking at the data um, whether you miss something in your review uh, it's' It's a lot, sure. But um, I, I think in the end, we all love what we do. and well, yeah, I and can that tell. Drives <laughs> us. Me. I mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, because because we um, we know that, uh, that this is not just making a, a, a better widget. I mean, this is something that can. Yeah. can
0: well, really and the really fact is fun. that you work in extremely complex things. You know, this is not just look at a petri dish and go, oh, that worked, let's just get a drug (laughs) on. You know, so, so, and I think people in the marketplace don't quite get what's involved. That's, I think, why it's so interesting to hear from your standpoint what it takes and all of the things that come uh, into the work that you do.
2: Yeah, (coughs) I think there's, um, yeah, that pressure of of what decision you make maybe right now about what the trial looks like you know how to design that and then yeah you might not know until years later where oh you know we should have done that a little differently or yeah. we should have added that you know um and the fact that those decisions are made now but the ramifications aren't made until might not be seen until yeah. later I, I
0: would think that's probably the most challenging you just you're looking at what's going on today and trying to prepare for like you were saying uh, a couple of years from now mm-hmm. you know what are the what are the what if scenarios that we have to be ready for is there anything that you would like to talk about that I didn't ask
1: I guess one one thing uh, just for again as we're talking about uh, educating um, your listeners to various aspects yeah. of, uh, of drug development is that uh, clinical trials, are a very different animal than clinical practice. And um, and oftentimes it can be confusing and, and so even by, nonsensical. By, tell,
0: me, tell me what you mean by clinical tri- by clinical practice. You mean <laughs> like a doctor practice? Exactly a drug you clinical to, practice.
1: Yeah. So you're a patient, you go to your yeah, doctor, you have a take conversation this drug and this. And, and, okay. and you go home. Uh, whereas in a clinical trial that uh, entire interaction is is regulated and um, Stipulated and standardized, yeah. and oftentimes uh, from a patient, and I've I've been a part of clinical trials as, uh, myself. Um, you are are just asking yourself, why, why am I doing this? It, it makes mm-hmm. no sense, um, or uh, you know, answering the same question over and yeah. over. Oh, I just answered this How yesterday. Many it's bios are bloody, di- <laughs> <need. laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, and and like I said, it may seem nonsensical at times, but. In the end, there there is a purpose, there is a, a strategy, and um, what we're trying to do is provide the most clear data that we can to the regulators, that they can objectively uh, look at the performance of the drug and, and make that decision. And that decision um, can be tough, but. Um, yeah. That's one of the things that I'd like to have your, your listeners maybe be aware is There's occasionally, yeah. you'll run into things that yeah. just don't yeah. make any sense.
0: A quick uh, interruption here to let you know that the next phase of this discussion is about a presentation that Michael and Debbie recently did uh, to the FDA for the next phase of this n- trial uh, for this new drug on acromegaly. And here's our discussion.
2: So I think all of the interaction with the FDA, they're governed by um, their formal meetings and they're governed by certain um, guidelines that tell you exactly what is the process for doing that. So um, when you interact with the FDA throughout development, you have different types of meetings and then there's an outline for um, you submit um, a meeting request and then the FDA gets that and then they decide whether or not to. Um, give you that meeting, and then if they accept it, then you put together a larger package with more um, information and evidence, and then you um, have that meeting with the FDA, and that can be face-to-face, it can be a teleconference, or um, it can just be written responses. Um, so that's sort of the overall kind of outline of what it's like to have a meeting or an interaction with the FDA. And then, Michael, do you want to talk more specifically? Well,
0: assuming there was, it's a ton of work to get something ready for them too. Oh, right? absolutely. So yeah. you're, I mean, yeah, it sounds then... like overwhelming. You just have to prepare everything, and here you go. And you probably get one shot at it, right?
1: Right. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> no you, pressure. Yeah. You can, you can have multiple shots, but each one of these shots uh, – not only does it take an enormous amount of effort, it's a very long lead time. And and in this case, we had a specific meeting type that had a 70-day time frame. And so even prior to that request, we had to put planning into place. So if you miss your shot, now all of a sudden you're uh, delayed again three more months if you have to re-ask a question or, yeah. or uh, get a clarification. Yeah. So, so it's enormously <coughs> important to get it right the first time, in addition, when we talk about these trials, um, not only do trials take a long time, the setup and preparation um, to start a study is an enormous amount of effort and takes a very long time. In this case, we're asking questions now for a trial that'll be um, only just starting uh, mid next year. And these questions that we need to ask are things that we need to know now so we can start developing feasibility and um, overall protocol designs. And that lead time factors into everything we do in in drug development. For this particular case, it was an enormous effort by every single department in the company to bring together the current data we have so that the FDA is up to date on the drug and, Mm -hmm. and where we are now, and then also put forward our proposals for the study. And finally, um, for every one of these questions you ask, you have to justify sure. uh, your position. And so that effort um, by the by every one of the team members here, at uh was was amazing. And um, you know, I knew the we'll department that
0: actually gets mm-hmm. all everybody to 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 uh, get information into you, then you package it and it goes. That's right. Um, That's right. Well, you're the checklist department, like I <laughs> Make sure all the, Check- all the dots are, uh, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Absolutely. Right?
1: Checklists yeah. are, are important, but, uh, and I think Debbie answered this question uh, perfectly before, and it's the reason I hired her, is yeah. that uh, we, we don't want uh, checklist uh, people. No, I know, I'm just trying to... Yes, (laughs) and and that's why we laugh when we hear checklists, (laughs) is is that um, if all you're doing is ticking boxes, um, you you don't have the right mind frame or or set, uh, because everything takes thought, and and everything has a slightly different um, focus, and there's way too many variables to capture in
0: any checklist. So, um, one final question for you guys. There's been a lot... Of discussion in patient uh, circles and in the media about pa- patient-centric programs and the use of the patient's voice in um, drug development and therapies, mm-hmm. etc. What what is your sense of how that's working, and what are the um, how do you see the FDA and even your um, uh, processes on that?
2: Yeah, I think um, right now that's a big priority for the FDA as part of, um, they're actually mandated to start um, developing things to incorporate the patient voice um, as part of um, the overarching legislation right now. It's called the 21st Century Cures Act. So um, from now until 2021, they're working on a series of um, guidance documents to Um, go through the different steps of how to incorporate the patient voice into different aspects of drug development. So that's definitely one um, big avenue. Um, Another one is they're leading these, um, they're called patient focused drug development meetings and these are either um, organized by the FDA or they can be organized um, by patient advocacy groups and that's an opportunity um, to get together with um, the FDA with industry and patients and to listen to their experience of the disease and what sort of um, outcomes and experience they think are important um, relating to drug development.
0: So let me ask you this because I you know my personal background comes from the I come from the marketing and communication side this it, before even I started this nonprofit, profit it's sort of in my wheelhouse and consumer centric projects or programs were a thing of the 80s. You know, there, there, there's the, the whole idea that you put the consumer in the middle of the enterprise and everything bubbles up. So mm-hmm. is this something new for the FDA or is it something that has all of a sudden, um, you know, they, they used to do it all the time, but it's packaged differently. It's all of a sudden a, a but is it a fad? Or is it, or is it, be, I, because it, this is not new. I mean, all of, no. it's in, it's all, all of a sudden, it's the patient-centric thing. And wait, wait a minute. That's the way you do work, right? <laughs> you put the patient...
2: I think, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to poo-poo it. No, but, no.
2: But I, th- I think that, and Michael, feel free to chime in here, but I think a, a lot of it in the past in drug development has really focused on... Um, like be- the interaction between like doctors and kind of that level. And so it is kind of a new thing to realize, hey... So,
0: so, so it's true that for the first time patients are being included in the, in, the, in the process of drug development, or there's an effort to listen to insight from patients.
1: That's, I, I, would, I would agree with that. Um, the, the patients have always been included. But now, what it is, it's a, it's a focus on them so that their voice is, is incorporated into the prescribing information. And if you ever look at a label, um, that the documents can be uh, terribly technical yeah. and dry, and, and a patient uh, reading that has, has almost no clue what it really means to them in a day-to-day mm-hmm um uh, personal life Uh, who cares if my blood analyte level goes up two or three points what does it mean to me Uh, and in this day and age with patients being far more educated and taking ownership of their own health um, having the fda sponsors and clinicians focus on some of these issues that really matter to patients and formally start working to get them into prescribing information mm-hmm. is is only a good thing of because um, you know clinical outcomes uh, are extraordinarily important, but so is the patient's day to day quality of life and and focusing on that I think is uh, something in a formal way is something new that uh, is only a good thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's interesting because we—I remember working on, on product development, and it was always about talking to the consumer first, mm-hmm. you know, and getting consumer insight into product design, product marketing, uh, usability. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this was uh, so. It's for me, you know, as a patient, and, I, and I'm you know newly, relatively newly diagno- diagnosed, you know, mm-hmm. with acromegaly, but but uh, for me. At twenty, and, you know, like, oh my God, this, they're just thinking about this. I mean, they haven't done. This? Well, but I don't yeah. think it's not that. It's not that they haven't thought of it. Yeah. It's, it's for it hasn't been formalized. Maybe.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I
0: think
1: it's a change in in yeah. patients yeah. and consumers yeah. too. Whereas previously, I mean, you think back thirty years ago, you you went to your doctor. Your doctor said you had X and, and said to take, take this mm-hmm. and you do you yeah. take and you go home. Yeah. You don't you know you you hope you improve, yeah. but you, you're. I think patients nowadays are far more active and informed and mm-hmm. advocates for their own health. Yeah. And oh, sure. And that's, that's a lot of what's driving this is, yeah. is, you know, they now go into a doctor's office and, you know, for for good or bad, maybe they looked it up on Wikipedia <laughs> yeah. or, or hopefully already a consulted better source. Yeah. <laughs> they Dr. Google. Yeah, they, they know a lot more about the mm-hmm. condition. They ask more informed questions. Yeah. It's more of a dialogue okay. with their uh, clinician rather than one-way conversation and, and I think all of these add into a focus on the patient
0: yeah those are very positive our thanks again to Michael Monahan and Debbie Co-Mendez from Chronetics Pharmaceuticals you have been listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News this is JD Fascinetti thank you for listening